When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message to listen to the latest stories and to leave a comment. Hi, folks. Dr. History here with another story from the Old West. This is a bit of a historic podcast because uh, this will be the first time I've done this solo without Seb Bell. So I hope you enjoy the story. Today, we're going to talk about kitchen table surgery. Now, you know, the tragedy of the Civil War presented the medical profession with the opportunity to develop better surgical techniques, which actually continued to be improved and got better and better up through the 1900s. And even after hospitals reached the frontier, there was still a place for doctors who could provide emergency surgery in the home. Now, for one thing, many did not want to go to a hospital, even when there was one nearby. Unfortunately, the medical profession had a bit of a bad reputation uh, during that time, but there was also a lot of very, very good doctors. But more often, it was a problem of distance, rough roads, and, of course, sometimes weather made it practically impossible to get to a hospital. Now, contrary to its image, uh, as you think about this, kitchen table surgery was not a what we'd call a blood and guts nightmare carried out by some drunken doctor with a butcher knife. A great deal of knowledge of anatomy, anesthesia, antisepsis, asepsis, and healing was required by the doctor. So they weren't just a bunch of no-good drunks. Uh, Some frontier doctors became extremely skilled at operating in the home, and they were able to do some pretty major procedures with very little help, sometimes by lamplight or even by the dim glow of a candle. And as you can imagine, some cabins, you know, didn't have much as far as light from windows. So they operated under some pretty difficult situations. Now, some procedures done in the home included, of course, things like broken bones, reduction of fractures, uh, typically, you know, gunshot wounds, even amputations, uh, lancing of an abscess, and believe it or not, appendectomies, uh, hernias, and rarely they actually would drill into the skull and uh, to relieve the pressure on the brain if they had, a, say, a brain abscess or a clot. 
Now, one of the most frequently performed kitchen table procedures was a tracheotomy. Now, in case of diphtheria, the inflamed membrane commonly obstructed the windpipe. And during diphtheria epidemics, tracheotomies were very common. Uh, so you can imagine uh, diphtheria victims were usually children. And because a patient with a blocked windpipe could, you know, they could basically die within minutes. So the doctor had to take charge immediately and do what needed to be done. Now, a tracheotomy, for those who may not know, was not really a simple surgery. Now, there's some essential arteries, veins, nerves that lie in the neck uh, near the trachea. So a slip of the knife could be fatal. Now, oftentimes, the doctor had to enlist the help of the family. Uh, quite often, the assistant was usually the mother or the father. And what they would do is they would sit at the head of a table. They would hold the child's head back as far as possible. Now, with the patient in this position, the doctor would make a longitudinal incision over the midline of the windpipe. And he would have to go through the skin, through the fibrous material the, of the trachea. Now, as soon as he got into the trachea, you could hear a gush of inflowing air into the lungs. Now, if that child is laying there turning blue, you can very well imagine the relief uh, of the parents when they could hear their child breathing again. Now, here's a part that might uh, you might want to not be eating a sandwich when I tell you this a little bit. But quite often there would be blood and mucus and pieces of the membrane kind of partially obstructing the windpipe and the tracheotomy where they had cut the hole. Now, this material had to be removed, and there was only one way to do it. Now, believe it or not, the doctor sucked the material into his mouth and then spit it out. Had to do this two or three times to get that clean. And uh, again, I hope you're not eating a sandwich while I'm telling you this. But now then they would put a tube into the tracheotomy hole so that the patient could continue to breathe. And I think sometimes maybe this gave the doctor an excuse to wash his mouth out with a little bit of whiskey. So that wasn't all bad. Now, another operation performed in the home was the mastoidectomy. Now, mastoiditis is a complication of the typical ear infection, which, you know, uh, if you have children, you know that they get ear infections pretty easily. But what happens is the bony plate over the mastoid, uh, was, uh, which is right behind the ear, was drilled open to allow the accumulated uh, infection to drain away and possibly avoiding even uh, brain abscess or uh, whatever, uh, brain damage. So there's a generation of young people out there uh, with scars and uh, really kind of surgical deformities over the mastoid area. There was actually a doctor, Camilla Anderson. She was recalling her early 20th century Montana homestead childhood, and she described a mastoid operation performed on a little boy in her family home. She said the doctor was summoned. He came, uh, she remembered, and the patient was laid out on the Anderson's dining room table. Uh, they were The patient was actually sedated with chloroform, which they used uh, during that time to put the patient out. And during the surgery, the little boy's body was kept warm with uh, blankets and warm cloths. But uh, the operation was a success. Now, uh, here's what, uh, what she says. The anesthesia most often used in those days was chloroform. And it was administered by a nurse or sometimes by a member of the family, often using a drinking glass technique. 
Now, here's what uh, is tricky. They would take a wad of cotton, they would pack it tightly in a water glass, then saturate it with chloroform. Now, the patient actually held the uh, glass over his mouth or nose, and when the anesthetic took effect, the unconscious patient's hand fell away with the glass. And the reason for this was is it avoided an overdose. So you can see if a doctor or somebody else is holding that over the patient, they might hold it there too long, which could be toxic uh, to some people. So when the patient was out, their hand moved, the glass dropped, and they were out. Now, by the mid-20th century, simple laboratory procedures had been developed to help with uh, these doctors. Uh, Blood transfusion, sometimes uh, life-saving, could be done away from a hospital, believe it or not, with uh, blood from a close relative, which uh, they actually cross-matched to make sure that it was the right uh, blood type. Now, IV solutions were uh, prepared by hand. The doctor would take some saline, which is basically salt water, and some glucose, and he would weigh out this mixture, and they would actually sterilize this first in a pressure cooker to make sure they weren't injecting uh, bad stuff into this guy's uh, blood. So these preparations could take hours. Uh, moreover, the rural doctors uh, who were put on the spot af- often had to uh, be resourceful in coming up with substitutes uh, when things weren't available as far as supplies. There was actually a Dr. S.A., and it doesn't say his last name, and this was actually in the 1920s. Now, he remembered his Depression-era practice in Shelby, Montana. And if you've ever been to Shelby, Montana, it's kind of a railroad town, uh, very small. My son-in-law actually comes from there. But anyway, I've uh, been there. But anyway, the doctor's ingenuity was challenged when a man was brought in after an accident that had taken a large part of his scalp. Now, I don't know what he was doing, uh, maybe with an axe or a hatchet or something. But anyway, a bunch of his scalp was missing, and the skin could not be stretched to cover the defect. So the doctor borrowed an electric drill. Yeah, they had electricity back then from a garage, and he emphasized not a variable speed uh, Black & Decker drill, but as he said, quote, it was a darned fast drill. Okay, so he used a room in a hotel next to his office, and here he sat the man on a chair and began drilling. Now, I don't know how you are, folks, but when I even hear the dentist drill, it makes me uh, uh, get a little uptight. Now, luckily, the drills uh, holes were made without going into the skull. So it was just a a very small, uh, very shallow uh, drill. And in about 10 days, there was some tissue that grew over the drilled holes. And this actually formed a base for a skin graft. So the doctor took a large portion of skin from the patient's leg, and it was used to cover this, uh, I guess, basically bald spot. And... The result was, quote, good, the doctor reported. Now, I don't know how you are, but I'm wondering, okay, did that guy have to wear a hat for the rest of his life? I don't know. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career Make an impact as a fact seeker and a truth teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. 
Anyway, if a surgical case was uncomplicated, the result was usually successful, but sometimes a physician only guessed at the diagnosis and more serious conditions were discovered sometimes after they actually opened up the patient. But things like gallbladder disease, uh, ulcers, and I'm sure they even found tumors sometimes when they opened these people up. Uh, So uh, it was not an easy thing to do, obviously, on a kitchen table. But there was a lot of good outcomes. A lot of these doctors did great, and a lot of patients, were their lives were saved. Now, not all doctors performed surgery. From colonial times, only a few men had the courage and instinct to be a surgeon. There was a Dr. John Jones in 1769. Now, that's a long time ago. He told his students that a surgeon must have, quote, firm, steady hands and be able to use both alike. So you had to be ambidextrous to be a really good surgeon. Then he says also a strong, clear sight and, above all, a mind calm and intrepid and humane and compassionate. So that's what he recommended to his students. Now, one extraordinary homestead surgeon was a guy by the name of Arthur E. Hertzler. And he actually has a book out there that you might find interesting. It's called The Horse and Buggy Doctor. Uh, Actually, it was published in 1938. But this Dr. Hertzler practiced many years as a country doctor in Kansas and trained himself as a surgeon. Now, when you say trained himself, it makes you wonder, okay, who did he practice on? Then that's maybe why they call it a practice, you know. Anyway, years later, he studied under the finest scientists in Europe. He actually went to Europe to to study uh, how to do things better. He actually built a hospital. He helped establish a medical school. He taught pathology and surgery. And of his years as a kitchen table surgeon, Dr. Hertzler wrote in his book. Now, I'm going to read this. It comes out of his book. It said, I did operations on the road for conditions I would not think of doing even in a hospital now. He says, I operated on patients I had never seen before. The majority of the patients I did on the road were the usual operations done in any hospital. Tumors, repair of cuts, cancer. He says, I drained four brain abscesses on the road in somebody's kitchen and did many mastoid operations. He says, I look back on those days of kitchen surgery with pleasure. He says, I saved many lives. These days are gone forever. Uh, You know, the coming generation of surgeons will not have a like experience. So the story of kitchen surgery should not be lost. It presents many lessons of value today. Modern doctors will have to accept the word of the old kitchen surgeons, that all that is needed for a good operation is a good surgeon and a good patient. Now, folks, I've studied the human body for many years. I was a practicing chiropractor for 38 years, and it always amazed me the uh, how, how the body works and what happens when it's not working and what can you do to help it to work the way it needs to work. And uh, the thing that's kind of frustrating sometimes is every single person is an individual. Everybody's different. What helps one person may not help another. So uh, I have the utmost respect for the physicians back then and today. We have a lot of really great surgeons, doctors that uh, have spent a great deal of their lives to be able to save people's lives. 
So that's it for today, folks. That's kitchen table surgeries. Uh, now, as I mentioned, this is my first time to do a podcast solo without Zeb Bell. So, you know, let me know your comments. You can go to my webpage, dr-history.com, and give me an idea of uh, what you think, and we'll just uh, go on from there. So you folks have a good day. Thank you. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.